Hello, and welcome listeners to the Advanced Intellect Systems Centre for Doctoral Training podcast. I'm your host, Simon Hawkins, and I'm joined by my co-host, Vincent Kahn. The AMS-CDT is a joint venture between the University of Manchester, University of Sheffield, Dublin City University, and University College Dublin, focusing on producing highly trained metallurgists to meet the demands of industry. This podcast is part of the CDT's outreach projects, more of which can be found at www.metallicscdt.co.uk slash outreach. The CDT is funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council and Science Foundation Ireland. This podcast will be exploring the paths students take into academia and answering questions from undergraduate students about life as a PhD student. Today, we're joined by our guest, Elizabeth. Liz, can you give us a little bit of a rundown and, you know, of who you are, what, what your position is with, you, with the university you're with? Hi, so um, I'm Elizabeth davis Fowler. Everyone calls me Liz, though. Um, I am a second-year CDT student uh, at the University of Sheffield, and my research interest is trying to develop a sustainable, rare-earth-free, permanent ferromagnet for applications in electric drive motors. So predominantly, I'm interested in the manganese aluminium system and how we can tweak that so it's a little bit more usable. Excellent. And before we actually have a proper deep dive into your research projects, do you mind just telling us what your undergraduate qualifications are and where you got them? Yeah, sure. So I achieved uh, an MPhys, so it's the the four-year integrated master's uh, in physics from the University of Warwick. I graduated in 2017 and then did two years after that on the MOD's uh, Nuclear Graduate Engineering Scheme through the uh, Defence Engineering and Services uh, team at the SDA. And if you don't mind me asking, what in particular drove you to join the MOD? Um, (laughs) That's a really funny question, Uh, mainly because I wasn't so much as driven as I graduated the year Brexit was declared. So most of the engineering firms were on hiring freezes. Um, we just recovered from the recession. Uh, so recruitment was tenuous, but then the declaration of independence meant that any European-centered or international engineering firms were dubious about the future. So I did what most scientific and uh, engineering graduates did. I popped my CV out to every engineering firm I could find and the only ones that got back to me were the MOG and a tech startup in London. Um, Not fancying that London life, I decided maybe defence was for me. Turns out it wasn't. Excellent. So how did you you find your your current PhD program? Oh, okay. Um, So I was working up at Recife at the time and actually quite dissatisfied with work and sort of searching about um, and I went through the findaphd.com website um, and I was just looking really at the time for nuclear related PhDs to stay within the, the nuclear family as we like to call it um, stumbled across the CDT and funnily enough the day I came for my interview they told me that project was no longer running uh, due to some funding issues but would I like to, to interview for a different project um, developing permanent magnets because it was related to something that I did my masters on um, and I thought you know I've, I've made the journey down from from Scotland to Sheffield on a 125 motorcycle the day before and I was utterly dreading the drive back so I thought I might as well and I'm here and that's kind of been the path ever since really um, put two feet forward see where they lead you 
and uh, led me to where I am now. All right, so it kind of like fell onto onto your lap, essentially. Yeah, I, I, I think I stumbled into it. Um, it wasn't a matter of I was massively driven by a module I took in my undergrad, um, and it wasn't a matter of uh, a driving passion at the time, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> no, now I'm now I'm here. I can't imagine doing much else. It's very much I just gave it a go really and I thought well what else am I doing with my time I could sit in an office job uh, for the rest of my life or I could go and do something that's meaningful So would you say that you, you, say that you in part in decided, part, to, do decided a, to do your PhD, PhD more out of a, a, a desire for like a, a clear like purpose, purpose if you will Yeah I think some, the previous sector I was working in was nuclear decommissioning and if you ever worked in the, in the nuclear engineering sector you know they're terrified of any innovation because of safety concerns after Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island and countless other accidents they realize that any mishap in a nuclear sphere is really damaging for a very long period of time and so it was just very stifling to work in because all of these great engineering leaps you could see and propose would always be shot down by a safety committee going well you need to ensure that you have an accident rate of one in ten thousand years um, so I thought, okay, let's take a step back from industrial engineering and then go look at academia where there's a bit more freedom to to explore, to innovate, to create and to research rather than turning the handle because we know it works um, and churning out the same thing we've been doing for 50 years. So really, I guess I was driven towards doing a PhD to do something more than what people were telling me to do instead to find something to tell the world how to do if you like gotcha i see very interesting thank you so you mentioned that you came basically down to Sheffield for a particular program did you know the supervisor of this program or did you know about them from say your earlier work uh, I didn't know them personally, nor of their work, but I was aware of the project. So the project was to look at the embrittlement of a certain type of nuclear fuel cladding that I was familiar with. Um, when materials are exposed to high neutron fluxes, you can end up with um, damage to the crystalline lattice, uh, both through transmutation of the material within it, as well as kinetic effects of uh, the material absorbing the neutrons and displacing atoms within it causing um, point defects and, and structural defects. Uh, it was very interesting at the time because it was closely related to the work I was doing um, for the MOD. But uh, in some ways I'm grateful uh, the project was pulled because it then led me to what I'm currently doing today, uh, which I see as a positive career shift really. Um, sounds very lucky. So. How do you find working with your academic supervisors? Like, how does it, I guess, compare and contrast against uh, during your time with the nuclear de- decommissioning? So, um, it's a very different relationship, I will uh, say straight off the bat. So I work for professors Russell Goodall and Prof- uh, Dan Allwood. Um, and it's very much a, a tale of two halves. Dan is very hands-off. I speak to him when I bump into him about once a month. And it's very much just a check-in, have you managed to kill yourself this month? Nope, fantastic, carry on. 
Um, whereas Russell, I see him every week, and it's a far more familiar relationship than I'm used to from a professional perspective. Um, an hour meeting, half it is just generally catching up about the research, and the other half is sort of a, a work-related friendship, uh, which is useful because it then feels like it's a very safe space for me to propose new ideas um, and talk about my research in a very honest perspective rather than trying to highlight my successes and diminish my faults like I was experiencing when I was in defence especially. Uh, working for the military, specifically the Royal Navy, they're very much driven by results rather than uh, process, which means that if you weren't presenting something positive, you were best not to present. Otherwise, you would just upset people that were in charge of you even though they didn't understand what they were in charge of because of the way the rank structures worked. So I think, all in all, I'd say I prefer working for Russell, uh, certainly, rather than some of my bosses within the MOD. Um, but it's a very different working relationship, and it's probably closer to a mentorship than it is to a, a supervision. Would you say it's a little little less, <clears throat> like without meaning to, say, try to insult him, would you say it's a little less professional and a bit more personal? Yes, I would wholeheartedly say that, and actually... I think having experienced various types of management throughout my career um, over the past 10 years, um, I would say I actually prefer the fact that it's less professional. Um, Russell is very much the kind of supervisor that leads from the front. You know, he's running about 10 different PhDs at the moment and several postdocs. Uh, he's got his finger in a lot of different pies, but he still takes the time to get to know you as an individual. Um, you know, any issues I've had, um, with work or with needing time off for health concerns, Russell has responded not as a supervisor, you know, going, oh, well, this is the deadline that you need to meet. He's responded as a, a friend and as a colleague, really, almost as an equal, um, trying to work around my needs and support me as best he can, which is nice, you know, something I appreciate. And I'd like to think that you two have with both of your supervisors as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I think so, that's part of, oh, sorry, I was going to say, I think that's probably part of the PhD life is that for the most part, most people have really good relationships with your supervisors. And if anything, it can be sometimes difficult if you don't, because you are chained to them, if you like, for four years. You, uh, you do forge a close bond, I think. Gotcha. Thank you very much. Now, before we go on to you know, ask you to describe your research project in a bit more, bit more detail, and talk about your working life. One of the things that does get mentioned by people that haven't uh, done a PhD or don't work in academia is the idea that PhD students don't have a lot of time and therefore don't have, you know, a lot, a lot of much of a, a social life or something in the way of hobbies. <laughs> However, I'm uh, led to believe that you're the president of a student society, aren't you not? I am. No, I keep very busy in my free time. Oh, where to begin? So I actually, as of this Saturday, just won my re-election campaign to run the University of Sheffield Rock Appreciation Society, the uh, the most non-geologically related society within the university. Um, rock, alt, punk, metal, anything that comes under wailing guitars and beating drum beats, that, that's us really. So, you know, you have spare time for that. On top of that, I'm also able to play. 
uh, in my band with a fellow CDT student, Lizzie and the Layabouts. Uh, feel free to check us out on YouTube, hopefully in the coming months, where our debut EP should be coming up there. Uh, I'm all right to plug that, right? Of course you are. Wonderful. Um, yeah, the, the EP being called um, The Next Storm. Um, and then I, I also managed to play a sport. Um, I'm uh, currently a pre-min blocker for Sheffield Steel Roller Derby. So yeah, no, you you definitely can balance work and your social life. Um, I think the, the misconception that people have about PhD students and work life is that you never get away from it, which is kind of true. You know, I often find myself working at two in the morning, but it's not that you're working a hundred hours straight a week. It's more that you need to let things sink in a bit and sometimes working when the idea strikes is the best way to get the job done and generally those 2am sessions are where I've woken up and I've had a fantastic idea for where to take my research and I'll spend an hour quickly churning through the data to make sure it works or planning something and then I'll pop off to doing what else I was doing um, you really can balance your life okay thank you so moving on Liz can you uh, give us a rough breakdown of your project. So, if you want to propel a car with uh, electricity, you can't rely on an internal combustion engine. You have to use an electromagnetic drive system. Um, I'm sure you've all seen them at school, the, the classic one. You take a bar magnet, you wrap some wires around it, pop it in a, a brush circuit, and then in a magnetic field, and you'll, you'll notice that if you put current through that wire, it will revolve. Now that is fantastic because it uses a soft magnetic core to amplify the magnetic field produced by the loop of wire, uh, which allows it to rotate. And the brush circuit means that you can have a, a pseudo AC current running through a DC supply. Um, AC being what comes through the wall, DC being far, far easier to work and generate with from batteries. The issue with that kind of circuit is that it requires a larger power drain through the system and puts an awful lot more heat into the engine. Normally you want to instead use a permanent magnet and then uh, rely on the properties from that working against the field to generate motion rather than having to actively power anything to preserve battery life. To achieve that in modern cars you use neodymium ion boron magnets um, which are fantastic and they've revolutionized the world of magnetics. People from my generation remember when they came back to the scene because Dyson vacuums came out that used them and they were fantastic. It's such amazing suction and power uh, usage. But if you want to use them in a car engine, you have to play with the chemical structure a bit because neodymium iron boron magnets have what's called a Curie temperature of about 200 degrees Celsius. Now a Curie temperature is if I take a, a ferromagnet and heat it up at what point will it switch from being ferromagnetic, so it's got a, a traditional north and south pole, if you like, if you want to speak in those terms, to a paramagnet, which is where it loses that ability to hold uh, magnetic polarization. So it stops, in essence, being a, a magnet as the average layperson would think about it, it just becomes a, a lump of material. Dysprosium is very rare. Uh, on Earth. It's, it's a heavy, rare Earth metal, and there are only a few sites on Earth we can really obtain it. Um, one of those is predominantly in China. The issues are then further compounded, given the refinement of heavy, rare Earth metals, uh, involving an awful lot of fairly nasty chemicals, um, a lot of fairly horrific acids, including hydrofluoric, 
which any uh, anybody with any experience in, in chemistry will be aware of is, is just really nasty stuff. Um, and the fact that those rare earth elements are often mixed with radioactive elements, um, which is problematic because that uh, waste material tends to be dumped um, by less than spectacular environmental regulation. And so it's really damaging to the local population. So my research is to instead try and find an alternative alloy that can fill that gap without any reliance on rare earth metals. So it's a real challenge. Um, thankfully, uh, we have identified an alloy system uh, that we can look into, the manganese aluminium alloy system, which does contain a ferromagnetic structure, um, metastable structure, which means it's got its own additional challenges. And so we're currently looking at strategies to improve the magnetic properties of that material so it's suitable for application, and then eventually improve the production route so that way, with a bit of luck, by the time I finish my PhD, I should be able to ride to my graduation on an electric bike propelled by my own PhD. If that isn't full circle, I don't know what is. Well, it would certainly be impressive. Uh, that's what I keep telling myself every time I have accidents in the lab that delay me by 40 minutes. So, how in general have you found your life as a postgraduate research researcher so far in terms of work life? You know, has there any, any parts of it that you didn't quite expect or that you found you know, quite good or even quite bad? So, I would say that it is the polar opposite from an office job. I've worked jobs from hospitality through to manufacturing, through to office work, um, and even you know, bits on, uh, on building yards and, and dockyards. And I would say that a PhD in postgrad life, it's closer related to blue collar work than I was expecting. An awful lot of time spent in labs, hunkered over machines, desperately trying to get things to work. And that tends to be where you'll have your roller coaster moments of things are going fantastic and life's super great and then something will break or something will go wrong and you'll be down to those crushing lows uh, like today where i was melting one of my samples and the person who'd previously used the equipment had loosened the electrode for some reason i hadn't picked up on that because it's not a standard thing to check and as i was melting it fell off into my sample uh, contaminating everything so i had to throw away a morning's work um, but for the most part I'd say that that's kind of nice compared to the monotony of graduate office life because that variability means that you can't predict what your work day is going to be like and uh, if you're like me and pretty easily bored you won't be doing an experimental PhD and then you've got the office stuff you know the, the data analytics and the, the paperwork and the literature review which is nice, especially given COVID. Um, it's a fairly zen task. I can just sit there and churn through my data. Or if I'm feeling um, a bit rough, you know, it's really easy just to pull up some papers and still actively work. But I've kind of almost got a choice in how I want to build my week, depending on what else I've got on um, or even how I'm feeling that day sometimes. So flexible is what I would say. Flexible, but variable. How would you guys describe yours? Yeah, likewise. You can you can always work on something else if the your current experiment isn't isn't going as planned. Oh yeah, definitely. So you mentioned um, the lockdown. Um, mm -hmm. How how has that 
affected your your, your work compared to your planned work? Oh, shall I give the propaganda answer or shall I give the honest one? Um, it was a real, real spanner in the works. So I was six months into the four-year program here when lockdown happened. I was still in the, the training year that the CDT, uh, the, the AMS CDT runs, which was frustrating because it meant all of the specialist modules that I was to take moved online and the quality dropped dramatically because they hadn't planned for it and they were doing the best they could. But uh, through a combination of poor video capture, uh, poor written slides and other factors, um, it just meant I didn't quite get that training. And secondly, I planned six months worth of experimental work, uh, which didn't get to occur. Um, so the first year of the AMS CDT functions an awful lot like a master's. So you do a, a six-month project, which was the mini project, um, just to sort of try PhD life. Um, and it's a good stopping off point as well. If you find it's not for you, you can walk out the end and you've got a master's degree. And you know, you've sort of, you've been able to, to try to, to dip your toe, so to speak. Um, and I couldn't. So I ended up trying to teach myself something called DFT or density functional theory to look at my material. Now the issue with magnetics is it's a fundamentally quantum uh, property. Ferromagnetism comes about essentially through the, the Pauli exchange principle that two electrons can't occupy the same space with the same spin, um, which means that you end up with some very complicated arrangements that I won't go into on this podcast because it would take me about 10 hours on a chalkboard. But it means that if you want to try and simulate why ferromagnetism occurs, you have to do it at the quantum level. So DFT takes the Schrodinger's equation uh, and builds from there. Now, I should point out the only reason I know all of this is that I taught myself that over six months, having uh, desperately avoided all computing throughout my undergraduate degree, I, uh, I'm not a code monkey whatsoever. Uh, I like a lab. Um, but, you know... It taught me some useful things and it kind of really forced me to diversify my palettes in terms of experimental techniques. And now that lockdown is lifting, I've started getting some training, but it's still very much hurry up and wait with an awful lot of techniques. Uh, I'd, like, I'd like to think anyone coming through, though, to do a PhD won't have these problems. Or if they do, they'll have done their degree during COVID and will be better adapted than I was during my time. Right, and just a, just a point of interest, how do you, how do you think um, your supervisor, uh, Russell, um, has uh, responded to it? Russell was incredibly supportive. Um, I lived alone during all of the lockdown, and I'll admit I went a bit loopy. <laughs> you know, if you don't talk to anyone for five days straight, and then the first person you talk to is your supervisor, they pick up on that fast. And he was very much like, do you need extra time for your deadlines? Um, you know, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? I noticed that you've got the, the blinds closed. Is there any reason that you're choosing to live in darkness right now? Um, yeah, no, he was really supportive and pretty much got me through it. Um, and when I was changing my project, the upside of having a supervisor that's had 20 ex years experience is that they've tried a lot of things. You know, they're not just, oh, I, I melt. I don't know, uh, refractory metals, and I look at those. They've done some theoretical work. They've done some experimental work. So if you hit that brick wall moment of, I can't do this anymore, they'll be like, cool, all right, 
let's try something different. Let's take that left-hand turn and try a different alleyway to, to go down. So it was Russell's idea to look at DFT, and then he put me in contact with uh, Dr. Colin Freeman here at the University of Sheffield, who uh, set me up, and Colin became like a an advisor for those six months, talking me through DFT and, and how to interpret all of the, the results. So no, he really adapted to, um, to it, I think probably better than I did, um, and was that kind of guiding light through what was some fairly dark times. So what exactly are you hoping to get out of your PhD beyond just you know, the obvious of getting your doctorate, uh, calling yourself a doctor, swanning about in fantastic uh, doc- doctorate robes? A really awesome electric bicycle that I built myself. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a funny one because I ask myself this on a regular basis. So we're, we're industrially sponsored uh, through the CDT, so my, my industrial sponsor is uh, Volkswagen Deutschland, their materials group. Um, actually I have a meeting with them on a Friday to discuss the progress of my research and I think when I started I thought this would be a great pathway to getting a well-paid and secure position within their R&D department um, working on the e-golf and other electric propulsion systems um, I still think that that could be a potential pathway the upside of going through Something like the AMS CDT is because you're answering industrial questions, you become industrially relevant to employ at the end of it, and you can generally command quite a good salary in a very secure position. However, the idea of postgraduate life and doing a postdoc does also sound interesting. Um, developments in my research made over the last two months have suggested there's a, a really novel breakthrough I've discovered that you know, I could spend 10 years fully characterizing. Um, and Russell's actually saying at this point, you know, if you wanted to, we could uh, really go down this route and um, fill out uh, grant applications. Uh, sort of, you know, the records of the case is strong enough. So I definitely see myself being employed after this, uh, whether as an academic or as a, an industrial specialist. I don't know yet, but I think it's the upside of the AMS CDT. Um, you can be flexible. Your path isn't as set in stone as a traditional PhD, where you're almost expected to become an academic unless you make those industrial links. You feel like you've got options essentially when you're after your uh, PhD is finished. Yeah, I think it's great because you make a load of contacts. Um, the CDT is you know, it's partnered with ten to twenty different businesses across four universities, and any given time there's you know, 40 to 50 students running through the system. So someone will know someone that you can talk to if you want to get into a certain larger engineering firm. And then your industrial supervisor um, generally will keep a a close eye on what you're doing. um, And at the end of the four years, it's not uncommon for them to offer you a position within their company if the research goes well. Um, But the, the option to go into academia is still there. Um, it's not devalued. Some people say that a, a CDT PhD uh, isn't quite the same as a traditional one because as uh, an industrial guidance, I'd argue that the additional stuff that you get with a CDT PhD, the, the PG dip that comes alongside at the AMS CDT, really gives you that edge in an interview process, having conducted interviews myself. So you mentioned that you're in part funded by the Volkswagen Deutschland Materials Group. Would you mind telling us a little bit about them and how you found working with them? Yeah, so 
Volkswagen materials group, it's um, a section within uh, Volkswagen Auto, um, which I'm sure you've all heard of. The, the Golf is the, the first thing that comes around, or the, the Beetle, or the, the Camper. VWs are, are fairly com uh, common, or um, uh, it's VWF auf Deutsch, which is one of the crazy things about working with these guys. Uh, it's a truly international partnership. They are based out of Germany, um, which has its own unique opportunities and challenges. Uh, opportunities being they are always encouraging us to pick up their language. So during my first year, I took the equivalent of an A-level in German in my spare time, alongside running rock stock and playing in bands and doing sports. So you really do have that free time. Um, and have sent bilingual communiques with them. Um, at the same time, it can lead to some challenges during meeting when it's like, what is an arc melter? How would you describe that in a foreign language? And it's like, this is difficult because you can't just look this stuff up. You have to interpret that. But uh, they're also quite hands-off, which I like. They're not breathing down our necks to get results. They've very much given um, my project a budget and a rough direction and they said, right, go, see what you find, uh, report back to us once a quarter, and if we have comments, we'll give comments, but we're not gonna micromanage you, which gives me that freedom I didn't have in nuclear decommissioning to set my own destiny a bit. So on Friday, I'm going to go and talk to them about this new alloy I've discovered, uh, see what their thoughts are as to where I should take it, and see what equipment they have that I can use, but at no point am I expected to almost uh, report to them and then ask for direction, which is nice. They're rare as well in the, the working world. Gotcha. So how in particular do they support your work other than the aforementioned funding? You know, if you were doing a, a standard PhD, what would you be missing compared to the experience you have? So now? in some ways, I guess the initial setting, because I'm aware of its application, my research can be a little bit more tailored, which answers a few early questions. So, for example, when I was looking at candidate materials to, to look into, um, there were various candidates I could look at. You know, uh, manganese bismuth was one, or manganese gallium, or iron platinum, um, or, or iron nitride, um, all of which show L1 naught magnetic phases, which is the phase I'm looking at at the moment, uh, the particular crystal structure. But when you run through all of those candidates against certain criteria that you'd need to meet to fit into an electric car, uh, you know, magnetic properties by unit of mass, by unit of volume, and then most importantly, price, um, it really narrowed down that research and then made sure I was relevant. So, you know, iron platinum, for example, has wonderful properties, but it would, uh, <laughs> it would see a six-fold increase Sorry, six orders of magnitude increase, sorry, in the price of a car, because the amount of platinum you would require for that magnet. Um, and I don't often feel like trying to win the Euro million to be able to buy a second-hand Rover. So uh, clearly not a candidate. <laughs> you know, nothing, not there's anything wrong with a Rover. You know, if you're a fully trained mechanic, it's a wonderful car. If you're not, then you get about three miles and it'll break down on you and you'll never get the thing moving again. Um, not that we've got anything against Rovers, of course. No, I mean, I do, but I can't officially hold that position, I'm sure, for some reason. Um, but it's also the, the opportunity to take placements with them. So they have been quite open, or at least they were before coronavirus, and we're going to discuss this on Friday. 
for me to go and spend time at their R&D site in Wolfsburg, um, especially if I can get my material to a production level where I have a set composition I want to work with and I want to try and scale it up. Um, because they have facilities there that you just don't have in academia to do bulk production. Uh, obviously, that's conditional on me getting to a, a point with the language where I could survive. But again, they're happy to house me. When I'm over there, they will pay me a wage, as is VW policy, which is lovely because it tops up my PhD salary, which is never a bad thing. Um, but yeah, no, I'd say for the most part, like, they're... <laughs> Input to the project is setting. Setting and additional uh, funding and materials should you require it. But they're fairly hands-off, and I appreciate that. Now, of course, um, yeah, you mentioned some uh, some technical terms there. Um, can, you, can you explain what a, a phase and a crystal structure is, just for the benefit of our listeners? When you think of a piece of metal, you often think of a, a grey, shiny object. What you don't realize is it's actually made of various stacking orientations of the composite atoms, atoms being the fundamental uh, units of, of materials, if you want to keep it simple. I mean, you can go down to the electron nucleus level, but for the, this purpose, you don't really need to. Um, and they be stacked in various different orientations, um, you know, one on top of the other in cubes, or you could think, well, okay, if I've got a a cube, why not I put an atom in the middle of that cube as well? That means I can fit more into that space. Or I could put atoms into the faces of the cubes, or I could do both. And then depending on a lot of different parameters, uh, the atoms will stack into different ways. And the different ways they stack really um, changes the property of that material. So for example, if you stack in what's called a... Uh, body-centered cube, so you've got um, a simple cubic shape, if you like, with an atom in each corner and one in the center, you'll find that it's actually quite ductile, but at the same point won't have a, a lot of strength. Whereas if you have a, a face-centered cube, so it's, uh, again, that eight-pointed cube with an atom in each of the faces, you'll find it's quite brittle but very strong. And we can play with that. So from a magnetic perspective, what you really want is something called anisotropy, whereby one of the lengths of that cube is is elongated or compressed, so it's more a more of a cuboid, which gives you a, a special direction for, for magnetic properties to align in. So when I say crystal structures, really what I'm interested in is that unique um, breaking of symmetry, where I can derive magnetic properties and the phase. Uh, relates to the crystal structure by saying that if I've got more than one element, um, the changing the ratios and the temperature of that um, composition for the alloy uh, will change which stacking orientation it wants to be in, and thus its material properties. Thank you very much. So, in a, from a broader societal uh, perspective, who um, yeah, who benefits from the results of your research? So, you know, uh, like social, economic, environmental consequences, that kind of stuff. Is it arrogant to say mankind? Probably. Um, <laughs> anyone that drives in general um, or relies on anything that's transported on the road. So by reducing the cost of electric vehicles, by getting rid of the rare earth content 
in the magnet, electric cars become far more affordable and we can use dysprosium dope neodymium iron boron for smaller more specialized um, applications instead. Uh, the costs of the alloy I'm working with are far less which means hopefully the savings be passed on to the customers so electric transport becomes cheaper. That way more people can move from uh, fossil fuel powered vehicles towards electric drives which then moves the carbon footprint from the consumer to the producer of power instead. And then the theory provided that, um, especially in the West, but hopefully globally, uh, power production can move to a combination of nuclear fission uh, and renewables, then we could hopefully use the technology I'm developing to limit the effects of climate change. I don't think I'd be uh, crazy enough to say we could stop climate change at this point. Uh, current research is showing that there will be some. But it's research like this that is allowing everybody to do their part to, to help save the planet, really. We've only got one that we can live on in this solar system. And I'd like to think that my research is helping us uh, stay on there just a little bit longer. Very nice, very green essentially. Hopefully your uh, your research helps us all hit the carbon target, carbon reduction targets. So before we move to finish off, I believe we have some questions from undergraduate students at the University of Sheffield. That one listener's question is: Do PhD students ever get holidays? Yes, yeah, we we get holidays. Um, we get up to six weeks paid annual leave a year. Um, and then you can kind of schedule your work life around when you want to work. So I try and work a four-day week, which means I do quite a lot Monday through Thursday. And then Friday, I use my paperwork day where I do a half day, um, meet my supervisor. But yeah, we get holidays. You are encouraged to take them. I have been ordered to take a few days leave at points uh, by supervisors, and they're really keen that you do take it. Yep, likewise. Um, I've been... It was encouraged, but I never take them because uh, um, because of the flexible nature. I sort of take short uh, holidays here and there, uh, and never actually take the actual long holidays because that's how I prefer it. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend con contacting supervisors for discussions before submitting a formal application for their uh, PhD studentship? I think it really depends on your relationship with either the supervisor or the research field. If you know the supervisor, then yep, go sit on the desk if you're in real life and have a conversation with them. If you're new to the university, it doesn't hurt dropping an email. Um, if you go through the CDT, I was interviewed by the people running the project and they didn't really expect a lot of prior knowledge and the interview was more just getting to know them and seeing if we got on and some very basic technical checks. Um, yeah, it can't hurt to drop them an email. Most people are friendly. If anything, a good idea as well is to try and contact the people that will work for the, the person offering the project, because that way you can get an idea of what they're like to work with as an individual and to see if you think your personalities will match. Thank you very much. And um, do you believe the best MSc courses are in mainland Europe or in the UK? I believe they're asking for, say, qualifications for PhDs. 
So I didn't do an MSc, which makes this one difficult. Um, what I will say is working with colleagues that have done MSCs in the UK and mainland Europe is that mainland Europe, the MSCs tend to be longer and they're a bit more specialized. In the UK, it tends to be faster. Um, I would say if you can do an integrated uh, master's through an engineering or uh, STEM course, I'd recommend it because it's an awful lot cheaper. Um, and you get to sample a wider variety of things. It's not in the same depth as a, a Masters of Research or an MSc, but you know, the funding is there, which is always lovely. Um, and generally you can transfer up until the end of your second year if you're listening to this in your first or second year. But yeah, I would say that they are inherently different. Look at the courses, look at the universities. And again, email some students or email the people running it and get a course breakdown. Um, but if you are going to mainland Europe, though, learn the language in advance. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Okay, uh, sort of related to that, what what's the basic requirement for be, being a PhD and how can I apply for it? Basic requirement, tenacity, a bit, a bit of grit and determination. Um, I think for the AMS CDT, a 2-1 was required. For, they'd look at you if you had a 2-2. Two -two. Um, normally, uh, it's dependent on your field. So I have a friend of mine that is doing their PhD in theoretical quantum cosmology, uh, which is as complicated as it sounds at Imperial College, and they required an 85% average in an MPhys program to even an interview for that course. Uh, so you have to be top of your game. It really depends on what you're applying for. Um, if you got a 2-1 or a first though, I'd say look into it. Um, and it's one of those questions you can broach with a supervisor. Normally, uh, they've been more particular about modules than overall degree scores. So for example, I have a fail on my university transcript uh, on one module. Thankfully, I don't work with lasers though, so it's not a real issue. Um, yeah, it, it's all about finding the fit for you. Don't be disheartened if uh, you think your academics aren't there because PhD life is not an exam. It's more like coursework and you'll get there in the end. You just might take a few more rounds of supervision. Uh, we have time for one more question. Do we need to provide a willing re uh, research direction and the, de and the details of plan? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Your first year is very much finding where you want to look into things. I quote Bruce Lee. I can't believe I'm doing this. The best way to approach it is to be like water. Um, you will see rocks in the stream and you just got to flow around them. You can't be so fixed on a certain direction that you'll try and bash your way through um, because you'll just get stuck um, and I think it's the best approach to ask a lot of the time where do you think I should be taking this I have an idea but what's your opinion um, research is collaborative if you try and go through with one set way of doing things you're gonna get stuck uh, so yeah be flexible um, something will come up you just need to be open to suggestions and if you don't have any ideas ask no one's going to judge you for wanting some guidance that's why we're students and not academics thank you very much that's all we have time for today uh, do you have anything in particular you want to share with anyone considering a phd anyone you know anything you want you want to sort of tell people before they get started or any words of encouragement or myths about the post-grad life that you wish to dispel? I would say um, speak to some PhD students, look into the uh, the CDTs, 
If you can try and get hold of some people that are currently working on bits and pieces, then you can kind of get an idea for life. Be open to things as well. Don't think about one area you want to look into. Because there may only be a dozen PhDs in that that will be hotly contested. See where life takes you and enjoy it. And if you really want to get an idea of um, what outputs can be like, then there's actually a conference coming up in July that you can attend uh, if you're so interested. The International Student Conference in Metallic Materials. Uh, streamed online from the 12th to the 14th of July, 2021, um, where you'll be having postgraduate students and early professional researchers show their work. Um, and we'll be more than happy as well to talk during plenary sessions and explain our jobs to people there. But yeah, I'd recommend attending that to get a real flavour of um, the kinds of things you can be doing in a PhD. Thank you very much. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, Liz. And that has been the AMS CDT podcast. We are grateful for the support of the EPSRC and SFI. You can find out more on our Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, and on our website, www.metalliccdt.co.uk. And as always, please share this podcast with your family and friends who may be considering postgrad studies. If you or someone you know has any questions, please send them to us through the link below in the description. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.